Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. We're launching a brand new series today. The title of the series is actually um, Unstuck, um, and we're going to be looking at First and Second Samuel. We're going to take um, a few characters out of those stories and sort of tell their story and discover what it reveals about the nature of God, God's interaction with humanity, that's us, um, and then also what does it mean for us today. And so my title um, today, just so you know, is Barren Wombs and Brazen Heavens. Um, yep, you'll find out in a minute. But before we get there, I want to um, give you sort of what we refer to as a sidebar apologetic. Can I just give you a couple of thoughts here briefly as we jump into the scriptures? And I think these are really important. In fact, I challenged you a few months ago to start bringing a Bible with you. Um, and by that, I, I mean a paper Bible. And here's the reason. Your device is great. My device is great. I use it all the time. I can find things quickly and easily. But here's what I've discovered. When I'm reading in here, I'm underlining things. I'm making little notes in the margins. And I have these Bibles that I have had for years and years and years. And when I look back into them, it's like the things I see revealed um, that I've discovered in the past and are being brought back into the present for me are just extraordinary. In fact, I have my dad's old Bible that he had in Vietnam with him. And to read through his Bible and to see the things that he underlined while he was there um, in the jungles, like... It's just a revelation. And so I would encourage you, a paper Bible, a pen, and a notebook. And here's what I'm saying. I believe if you will engage at that level on a Sunday when we're here together, you will walk away with things locked in that you will be thinking about and chewing on all week long. And so if your goal is to know Jesus better, to know his word better, then there's no better way to do that than to actually take some notes. Even if you never went back and looked at them again, it will lock it in in a much more significant way. And if three months from now, after you've done that consistently every single Sunday for three months, you come to me and say, I haven't learned anything new, then I will give you $10,000 out of Pete's salary, okay? Um, That's a total lie. That isn't true. I'm not going to do that. I just felt like I should say that also out loud. Okay, but I'm telling you, it'll work. All right. Now, when we look into the scriptures, um, there are a couple of things that you need to understand. I refer to them as the three-legged stool, and you need all three legs of the stool. Uh, the first thing is this, um, that when you and I want to know God, the scriptures are the first place that we discover who he is and what he's like. This is his revealed word or the inspired word of God. And, and listen, I don't follow Jesus because of the Bible, but I met Jesus experientially, and the Bible tells me what he is like and what God is like. And that's where I discovered. And I believe he preserved his word so that we had his word. And so when we're talking about worshiping and following Jesus, you cannot do that faithfully apart from his word. 
In fact, Jesus places a premium on the word of God in his own teachings, in his own life. He is incessantly referring to Old Testament passages because they are reliable to reveal to us who God is and what God is like. The second thing you need in knowing God is the spirit of God. Because I know lots of people who know great Bible verses and there ain't no spirit of Jesus in them. I'm like, anybody met those? Is that person beside you? Just go ahead and lift your hand if that's true. Um, uh, no, the Spirit of God, the indwelling Spirit of God. And the Scriptures tell us that the Spirit will lead us into all truth. So you need the Scripture. You need the Spirit of God. And lastly, study um, or an intentional process. And, and this is why I bring this up, because I actually think there are three elements to this piece that are really important. Uh, the first one is um, understanding the culture that a particular passage is written into. This is going to span a few thousand years of culture, but we actually have the ability to have a base knowledge of what was going on culturally at the time. What were the practices that were happening at the time? What were the religious practices, the social practices? And it's important to know the culture that the scriptures are written into. Christians are renowned for cherry-picking Bible verses that actually literally have nothing to do with us and then applying them as our life verse, getting them tattooed on our back, usually up high, hopefully not a tramp stamp. Like, I mean, so <laughs> that just came out. I don't know why. Um, maybe that was a word from the Lord for someone in this room right now. You were considering, um, no, okay. Um, uh, uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. That's not written to you. I know it comes as a total shock to you because you think every verse in the Bible is about you personally. <laughs> but it was actually written to the people of Israel for a specific purpose at a specific time. And it may apply now and here in this moment in your life and in my life, but understanding the cultural context and the biblical context are both critical. What's happening in the narrative at that moment as you're looking at the story or the passage that you're reading? And the last one, and this is really important, is consensus. Uh, generally speaking, what has the church, the church, not church on the rock, or, but the church understood this passage to mean historically. And here's why this is important. One of the most dangerous things to do is begin to apply your own private interpretations to the scriptures outside of community. You and I were actually designed to wrestle with the word of God in the community of God. And we need one another. We need the differing perspectives. That's why you should be really happy that my mom and dad attend our church and they're in this service, is my mom never hesitates to send me a text and say, I don't think that's what that passage means. Where'd you find that, sugar? Right? Like, <laughs> I'm just like, I'm the pastor. Um, uh, but, but the, <laughs> not first, you're my son. For, uh, anyways, you get the idea. I won't show you the text messages. Um, the, the idea is this, though. You and I actually need one another. And it is dangerous when someone begins to just apply their own private interpretations to the scripture without asking the question, what has the church historically understood this to mean? That gives us some framework. It doesn't mean the church always has it right, but community is critical when it comes to handling the word of God. Some of the most dangerous and devastating movements you've ever seen come out of a place of isolation and private interpretation of the scriptures. All right? So you take those three things, culture, context, and consensus. Now, speaking of those things, let me give you a little bit of context for First and Second Samuel, because a lot has happened. If you don't know, I mean, you go ahead and turn there. First Samuel chapter 1 through 3 is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. It's like a quarter of the way into your Bible or something. Um, First Samuel, and you can go ahead and turn there because we're going to spend the bulk of our time there. But at this point in the nation of Israel, 
Um, they've already been given the law of God. God has clearly communicated his intentions, his process, all of those things. They've been given the law of God. They're living in the promised land, this territory that God has guaranteed them and now led them into. They've taken possession of it. Um, they are governed by a group of people known as the judges. So in your Bible, you have the book of Judges. This is the story of those individuals that God raised up to govern the nation of Israel. When they had disputes, disagreements, they could come together and the judges would pass judgment on the nation or on the individual situations. And, and here's the thing. The judges were just not that great uh, people, but we'll get to that in a moment. Then they were led by a priesthood. And so there were priests who were established who would offer sacrifices, but really to be specific, the priests were the ones who would speak to the nation of Israel on behalf of God. They were the mediators with God for the people of Israel. And that's the cultural context, but if you look at the biblical context for where 1 Samuel is placed, here's what you need to know. That in the days of the judges, this is according to Judges 17, Judges 21 repeats the same thing. In the days of the judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, which is another way of saying in the days of the judges, nobody followed God's law. They just did what they thought was right, and it was chaos and anarchy and bedlam during the days of the judges. Now, that's not what the text says, and this is really interesting. It says in the days of the judges, everyone did what they believed was right, not what they believed was wrong. They just did what they thought was right. It was their truth. It was their way. It's not saying specifically they intentionally did what was wrong. They just didn't do what God said. And they did what they believed to be right. And what we discover in the text is it is absolute chaos. Can you imagine a culture where everyone just did whatever they thought was right. How crazy would that be? Like, they called things that were evil good and things that were good evil. Like at the Grammys or something. Like, no, I'm just kidding. I'm not even going to go there. I'll leave it alone. So, so in the days of the judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and it was chaos. And the second thing you need to know is that the priesthood was corrupt, like to the core. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, I want to take a look at it real quickly here. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, Eli is the high priest. He's also the judge in the nation of Israel at this time. Now, Eli was very old, but he was aware of what his sons were doing to the people of Israel. He knew, for instance, that his sons were seducing the young women who assisted at the entrance of the tabernacle. Eli said to them, I have been hearing reports from all the people about the wicked things you were doing. Why do you keep sinning? You must stop my sons, the reports I hear among the Lord's people are not good. He's right. They are not good, and they should stop. And at the surface, you're sort of like, get them, Eli. Tell them what's up. You boys need to quit doing this stuff. Do you understand me? If I have to tell you one more time, I'm going to pull this chariot over, right? Like, he's telling his boys to cut it out. And here's the thing. He told them to cut it out, but he didn't do a thing about it. And he was responsible. He was the high priest of the nation, and God had given explicit instructions for priests who behaved in this way, and it was the death sentence. And Eli actually loved his sons more than he loved God's people, and he chose them over righteousness for the people. And he allowed them to continue 
to persecute the people of Israel. God's going to deal with all that. Don't worry, we'll get to it in just a moment. But here's what you need to know. In these days, right, the judges, the days of the judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The priesthood was corrupt. And you need to know this, because it's always true, God has a plan. No, no, he does. In fact, God is never seated on his throne in heaven going, what? (laughs) Didn't see that coming. Any of you guys have any ideas? Just quit singing to me for a minute. I need some help here. Like, we need to get a plan going. We need to solve this. God is never confused about what comes next. In fact, he's seen it from beginning to end. He had a plan before the foundations of this planet were ever laid. God is never in heaven going, well, what do we do now? I guess it's on to plan F, right? I mean, like, God is not confused, and he has a plan, whatever the circumstance may currently be. It's actually the revelation throughout the entire story. Which brings me to barren and brazen. In our story, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, and we're actually going to pick it up in verse 1, we're going to take a look at a man named Elkanah, which... Just say, thanks, Mom, for not naming me Elkanah. There was a man named Elkanah who lived in Ramah in the region of Zuf, in the hill country of Ephraim. Elkanah had two wives, Hannah and Penina. We already know he's in trouble at this point in the story. Penina had children, but Hannah did not. What were being told here in the very beginning is that there's actually a a loss, something that Hannah has desired. She doesn't have, but Penina does, and they're living in the same household. And I would just ask this question right out of the gate here, because I think this is a challenge for me. I'm sure it was a challenge for Hannah, but um, am I able to rejoice when others receive the thing that I have requested of the Lord? That can be really hard. Am I able to rejoice when others receive the thing I have requested of the Lord? In this case, she's dealing with an issue of infertility. My wife and I, for about 14, 15 years, really wrestled with this. People prophesy over us. We prayed routinely, God, would you give us children? From the time our son Caleb was born to 14, 15 years later, we were not able to have kids, still have not been able to have kids. Could be because I'm old now, but then it wasn't. And we were pastors, and we were in community and fellowship with other people, and so we heard about everyone who got pregnant. And every time that news came, you had to wrestle with rejoicing for what they've received and still grieving a loss that you feel, right? Am I able to rejoice when others receive the thing I've requested of the Lord? That's hard enough by itself. But it gets much worse for Hannah. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, we'll pick it up in verse 3. Now this man, Elkanah, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. Apparently there were many. But Hannah, to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the who? Lord had closed her womb. Ooh. 
and her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. If you can imagine, it's bad enough, right, that you're grieving the inability to have children when all you want is to have children. You want to contribute. You want to bring sons and daughters into the world. You want to raise children. You feel like that's what you were created to do is the thing you're passionate about, and you pray, and you pray, and you pray, and the Lord doesn't answer, but he keeps answering for her. And it isn't just that he answers for her, but she's also antagonizing me constantly. How's the feel not being able to have kids? Don't you wish God would listen to your prayers? Right? It goes on year after year after year. She is mocked by Penina. Don't worry, it gets worse. Picking it up in verse 7. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, men, there's a cue to take here. Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat, and why is your heart so sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? No, you're not. She hasn't been praying for more of you. She's got plenty of you, Elkanah, right? I'm not saying you're not like a kid, but the reality is you are not what she's longing for. He's just trying to comfort her, but what she really feels is just pitied by him. In fact, I would say this, that Hannah feels these things distinctly. She feels pitied by her husband because she can't have what his other wife has, and she feels mocked by Penina, and she feels ignored by God. It's irrelevant as to whether God is actually ignoring her or not, but it's certainly what she feels from God. In fact, this next slide just lists them out. She's pitied by her husband and mocked by Penina and ignored by her God. And this is the place she finds herself in. And just when you think that it couldn't get any worse for her and all that she's navigating, it brings me to muted and misunderstood. In fact, on one particular occasion, she is going to go to the temple and spend some time in prayer. Maybe if God didn't hear me back in my own city, maybe he'll hear me here in Shiloh. Maybe the presence of the Lord is thicker here. Maybe the Lord is closer here. Maybe he'll hear my prayer here. And so in 1 Samuel, we'll pick it up in verse 9. Hannah got up and went to pray. And Eli, the priest, was sitting at his customary place beside the entrance of the tabernacle. Hannah was in deep anguish, crying bitterly as she prayed to the Lord. And she made this vow, O Lord of heaven's armies, if you will look upon my sorrow and answer my prayer and give me a son, then I will give him back to you. He will be yours for his entire lifetime. In this moment, in the midst of her anguish, she strikes a bargain with God. You ever been there? Like, God, if you would just, then I will. God, if you would just rescue me out of this situation, then I will surrender my whole life to you. God, if you will provide the money that we need for this thing, then I will give to you. God, if you will produce this in my life, I will surrender this in my life. And Hannah, in this moment, makes a vow to God. 
She's tried everything else she can think of, but now there in the tabernacle praying before the Lord, she says, God, if you will give me a son, I will give him back. Now listen, here's what she is not saying. She's not talking about baby dedication on a Sunday morning. Like we pray, you get some flowers, and we invite you to help us raise this child. No, she is literally talking about relinquishing her rights to her son and turning him over to the priesthood to be adopted at the earliest possible convenience for the rest of his life. That's the vow that she makes to the Lord in the midst of her suffering and her sorrow and in her grief. It's a significant vow. And then this happens. As she was praying to the Lord, Eli watched her. Seeing her lips moving but hearing no sound, he thought she had been drinking. Must you come here drunk, he demanded? Throw away your wine. I can't tell you how many times I've had to say that to people on a Sunday. No, seriously. (laughs) In this moment, he's watching her. He's like, this woman's out of her mind. She's weeping bitterly. She's moving her lips, but no words are coming out. Clearly, silent prayer wasn't a regular thing. And so he goes to her, and he's like, you've been drinking. You should not be drinking. Put your wine away. How, How could you desecrate the house of the Lord in this way. And now she finds herself, not only has she been mocked and she's pitied, but now she's being maligned by her pastor. He completely misunderstands what's going on with her. And so she responds to him. Oh, no, sir, she replied. I haven't been drinking wine or anything stronger for that matter. But I am very discouraged, and I was pouring out my heart to the Lord. Don't think I am a wicked woman, for I have been praying out of great anguish and sorrow. I just want to pause and and give you a principle here. It's the principle that I call the principle of grumbling versus grieving. Because the truth is, when I'm misunderstood, when I'm mocked, and when my reputation is maligned, I am absolutely free to express my feelings to God. He already knows them. I can't hide them anyways. I'm absolutely free to express my feelings to God, but I must be cautious. I must resist the temptation to grumble about God. Listen, all kinds of things come out when we're grieving, right? But here's what I'm very specifically saying. When I land in that place that I am bringing an accusation against God, which I can do, but I should probably buckle up and be ready for his assessment of me. I've told you the story before, a particular season in our life where we felt like we had laid down everything for God. We had sold our home in Michigan. We had moved back to Alaska. Like we had given up everything. Did not know if we were going to make any money, how we were going to make money, whether we were going to have groceries for tomorrow. And it seemed like everything that could go wrong was going wrong. Every single week, every single day, it seemed as though the next terrible thing happened. And I found myself standing in my kitchen saying, God, why haven't you done what you promised Why have you not provided for me? Why have you failed me? And God, in that not-so-gentle way, saying, would you like to go to court with that accusation? Did you eat yesterday? Do you have the most amazing wife on the planet? I think so. Like, God just coming back to me and saying, would you like to go to court with your accusations? Be very careful when you begin to move into that place of settling accusations against God. We are free to express how we feel. He's not afraid of it. He can handle it, and he already knows it. 
but he also wants to meet us. And there must be an element of trust and faith, even in the grieving. I must resist the temptation to grumble about him. And Hannah does this well. She expresses her heart to God, but she's expressing it to him. So Samuel responds, or Eli responds to her. He says, in that case, since you're not drunk, Eli said, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant the request you have asked of him. Jump into verse 19. So they returned home to Ramah. When Elkanah slept with Hannah, the Lord remembered her plea. Just another way of saying they got fresh and lovely and she got pregnant, right? Like, like, they got together when they, now if you're Hannah in this moment, you're like, really? Like I've been praying for this for years. And the moment I make a vow to God that I will relinquish my rights to this child, I get pregnant. She knows what it means from the moment she's pregnant until the moment that she gives birth to a son. Which brings me to experiences and expectations, or my subtitle for religious leaders and raunchy ladies, which my wife told me not to use. <laughs> Clearly did not pay attention well. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus is going to be invited to a dinner party. The dinner party is for the religious elite. It's for all the fancy pants in town. It's for all the good people. And Jesus accepts the invitation. It's by a Pharisee named Simon. And Jesus shows up at the party, and everybody's in their evening gowns and their tuxedos, and they're hobnobbing and talking about all the things they've been up to. And Simon's like, here's my guest of honor, Jesus. And as they're reclined at the tables, eating their meal, another dinner guest shows up, but she wasn't invited. In fact, as soon as she walks into the room, everyone knows who she is. We're not told exactly how they know who she is, but she's known as a woman in the community of ill repute. She should not be at this party, but it gets worse. When she shows up, she's weeping already. She's carrying a bottle of perfume or ointment with her, and she goes straight over to Jesus, reclining at the couch with his feet up, and she goes down to his feet and begins to weep. And it says that her tears as they're falling are just soaking his feet. And she's wiping them with her hair. And then she pours this ointment on them. And what becomes abundantly clear is that she is there because she has had an encounter with Jesus. And the only thing she can think of to do is she doesn't care what any of the fancy pants think. She has got to go and let Jesus know what a difference he has made in her life. And as she's there worshiping, the Pharisee is thinking something about her. Something you and I would never think, of course, about anyone else. Here's what it says in Luke chapter 7, verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, it's just telling us he didn't say it out loud, he said it in his head, because that's where we say all the bad things, because God doesn't know about them. He said to himself, if this man were really a prophet... He would know what kind of woman is touching him. Here's what kind she is. She's a sinner. Here's what he's saying, but not saying. She's different than all of us. She's not like us. She's bad. She's a sinner, and we're the righteous. That's how he sees it. 
And then Jesus answered his thoughts. Don't you hate that? He answered his, not his words, he answered his thoughts. That's so frustrating that Jesus can do that. He's doing it right now while you're sitting there. Like He's like, oh, by the way, I know what you're thinking. And he answered his thoughts because what he thinks matters as a man thinks in his heart. That's how he actually is. He answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, and Simon, not having any idea that Jesus was reading his mind, I have something to say to you. And Simon says, oh, go ahead, teacher. And then Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one and 50 pieces of silver to the other. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debt. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? It seems like the answer is obvious, right? I mean, like, if you had a $5 million debt and someone else had a $500 debt or a $5,000 debt, right, that if someone forgave both of you, well, one of you would be more grateful than the other one. Like the one who'd been forgiven $5 million, right, would be far more grateful. And so this is how Simon answers. Well, the one who's been forgiven more. And Jesus is like, you're brilliant, Simon. Well done. Yes, that's true. The one who's been forgiven more is the one who would. And then Jesus goes on to say this, verse 47, I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love, but a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. Can I tell you what Jesus isn't saying here? He isn't saying that some of us have been forgiven a lot and some of us have been forgiven little. He's saying some of us recognize that we've been forgiven a lot and some of us don't. And how we live and love and respond to others reveals the depth to which you know how much you've been forgiven. In fact, we were all in the exact same boat. The penalty for our crime was death. We all got the same sentence for the same crime for different reasons. But the crime actually was rebellion against the sovereign God of all the universe. And we were all in the exact same position with the exact same sentence and were forgiven that debt by the person of Jesus. And some of us know it and some of us don't. In fact, this verse leapt out to me in a brand new way at a particular moment in my life. I'd been pursuing this smoking hot redhead for quite a while. It was the days of courtship, and so I had to get her dad's permission to marry her. He seemed reluctant. I don't know why. I was such a great person. But the moment came when it seemed like the doors were really going to open up for us to spend some significant time together, and we were actually going to attend the same Bible school in Homer, Alaska. And so we're on our way up the Alcan, and just to be clear for all the young people in the room who think that it's, you know, appropriate to spend days on end together with someone you're not married to yet, um, and that there would be no danger in that, um, it, we were with my parents, so that includes my mom. We were driving up the Alcan in a big conversion van. They were making sure that we kept, you know, great distance from each other at all times. And we're driving up the Alcan, and I had this thought, like, I, I owe it to this woman. If she's considering spending the rest of her life with me, I owe it to her to tell her about my past. And here's what I mean by that. She knew I had not been a great person. She knew that I had run pretty hard from God for quite 
some time, but she didn't know the depth of my personal failures. I feel like I owe it to her to tell her all of that, about my relationships and the things I'd been involved in. And so somewhere in Canada at a campground, I decided it's now or never. I don't know how she's going to respond to this information, but I owe it to her that she knows it, so I'm not hiding anything for the rest of my life, right? And so I sit down at a picnic table with her, and I share it with her, and she says, um, I need a little bit of time to just think and pray through this. And so we took the rest of that evening, and when we came back together that next morning, this is what she said to me. She took me to this passage, to Luke chapter 7. She said, here's what I know. He who's been forgiven much loves much. And what she was saying is that when you and I understand the depth of our failure, in fact, the better that you get to know yourself, the deeper your affection for God and your love for others should become. The quicker you should forgive, the quicker you would reconcile the depth of degree to which you know what you have been forgiven of, the sentence that was against all of us was the same. He's been forgiven much, loves much. I would say it this way. This is the principle I see here. Our depth of experience with God will be revealed by our willingness to act in love towards others. Moving on in 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 20, the time comes for Hannah to give birth. Chapter 1, verse 20. And in due time, she gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, for she said, I asked the Lord for him. The next year, Elkanah and his family went on their annual trip to offer a sacrifice to the Lord and to keep his vow. But Hannah did not go. She told her husband, wait until the boy is weaned, then I will take him to the tabernacle and leave him there with the Lord permanently. You can almost hear the anguish in her voice. In fact, her husband picks up on it clearly. She says, "Um, how about I not go this year? Because she knows that the moment she shows up at the tabernacle, she should fulfill the vow that she made to the Lord. Can we just put this off a little bit longer? And what we know historically is that the child would have been weaned anywhere from two to five years old. But as best we can tell, she's going to wait till the last minute because she knows the moment's coming for her to obey the Lord, to fulfill the promise that she had made to God. And this is a painful process for her. In fact, her husband picks up on it. Listen to his response. He says, whatever you think is best. He's wised up a little. Elkanah agreed, stay here for now and may the Lord help you keep your promise. So she stayed home and nursed the boy until he was weaned. Here's what he's saying to her. Listen, the moment's going to come And I get it. This is hard, and this is painful, and this is your only son, but the moment will come when you must act in obedience to the thing you committed to the Lord. Can I put this in context for you? When my wife and I got involved in foster care and adoption, um, we didn't know how painful that whole process is, was. In fact, I would tell you, if you've romanticized any of it in your own heart and mind, or if you ever choose to get involved to meet your own needs, don't do it. Because it's a grueling process. And I believe God is totally in it. I believe God is for it. You know that. But 
I'm just telling you, it's a painful process. And when Kitri and I stepped into that process, God spoke very clearly to us two things. One, we were never to vilify the biological parents of the kids who came into our home. We were never to pretend as though we're so much better than them. We had a responsibility to contend for health and wholeness and well-being, all of those things, but the reality is that everything in you wants to paint yourself as a better person, and God just said, don't you dare do it. It's not about you, it's about them. And I'll never forget having to walk that out over and over again when people make terrible decisions, when it becomes glaringly obvious that they should not be raising a child or they're in incarceration and they can't do it or whatever the reasons are. But I'll never forget the moment when we're in the courthouse and the time has come for these parents to relinquish their rights to their child. And I don't care what's going on in a person's life. I cannot imagine anything more painful than that process as a parent. Even if you know they're going to a great home, even if you said, if I relinquish my rights, I want them to go here, there's nothing more painful than that process of relinquishing something that was yours at the time. And I'm sitting in my car in the parking lot in Homer, and I'm watching the dad and the mom come out of the courthouse, and they're just weeping after signing those papers. And God's so clearly speaking to me. Jonathan, weep with those who weep. You do what I've called you to do. You love this child. They're your child. I brought him into your home. This is good, and I'm in it, and all of those things. But you weep with those who weep. That is where Hannah is at in this moment. She has shown up at the tabernacle to relinquish control of her own child and her only child. And I don't care how you slice it. If it was a vow you made to God or if the state got involved, there is nothing more painful than doing that. Here's how I would say it. Our private acts of obedience, our private acts of obedience are always about so much more than our personal journey with God. Our private act of obedience is about more than our personal journey with God. Hannah does not know it in this moment, but her suffering has led her to this situation, and God is doing something much bigger than her story in this moment. So here it is. Elkanah is giving her the caution. And when the child was weaned, Hannah took him to the tabernacle in Shiloh. Verse 25, after sacrificing the bull, they brought the boy to Eli. Sir, do you remember me? Hannah asked. I am the very woman who stood here several years ago praying to the Lord. I asked the Lord to give me this boy, and he granted my request. And now I'm giving him to the Lord, and he will belong to the Lord his whole life. And they worshiped the Lord there. Hey, remember me? I'm the woman you thought was drunk. I was up here just grieving and weeping and crying out to God. Do you remember me? Well, here I am. I went home, and the Lord gave me this baby boy. And I know I haven't been back for a few years because this is really, really hard. But here I am. I'm here because I'm going to obey the Lord. And she has been in this cycle of grief 
and sacrifice and surrender and grief and sacrifice and surrender. And here she finds herself all over again. And this brings me to what you don't know, because there is so much that you and I don't know about the situations that we find ourselves in over and over again. In fact, Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they have no idea that their dad has just welcomed into their home their replacement and thus sealing their doom in the future. God is going to deal with the abuse that those priests are bringing on the people of Israel, and he's going to do it through raising up this young boy to replace them. And Hophni and Phinehas have no idea that in this moment, God is enacting a plan to rescue the people of Israel, and it is going to bring them to their demise. In fact, Eli had no idea in this moment when he's taking this four or five-year-old boy into his house that his unwillingness to deal with his son's rebellion his son's unrighteousness will actually lead to his own untimely death because he would not obey the Lord. And Hannah in this moment, Hannah had no idea. She did not know that her suffering would lead her to make this vow of surrender, that she would surrender control of her own child that she would conceive. She didn't know. There she is praying before the Lord, and she makes this vow, and she has no idea that when she gets home, she's going to be pregnant. It's going to be a boy. It's going to be her only boy at the time, and she is going to have to relinquish control of that child so that God could accomplish his purposes that exceed her lifetime and exceed Samuel's lifetime. She had no idea in that moment. And Samuel, Samuel did not know that his willingness to stay put where his mom had placed him, that his adoption was going to lead to his ascension to the position of priest and prophet and judge in the nation of Israel, thus bringing a revival for the entire nation. He had no idea in this moment, but God did. God knew He knew what he was going to produce in the midst of their suffering if they would surrender to him in that moment. He knew. And here's the thing. You won't know either in that moment. You can hope and you can wonder and you can plead with the Lord, but in that moment, in the midst of suffering, you and I have no idea what the Lord could accomplish, would accomplish, desires to accomplish through our willingness to surrender in the midst of suffering. But what we can be certain of is that God does know. And those words are powerful reminders. It's what the story of Samuel reminds us of. It's what the story of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Joshua and Judge Deuteronomy, all of it is a reminder that the sovereign God of all the universe does know that he does see us in the midst of our suffering, but he invites us to surrender right here, right now, in this moment, trusting that he could produce something that exceeds our wildest expectations and that our surrender in the midst of suffering is about far more than our personal journey with him. In fact, Hannah will go on to have more sons and daughters. But here's what I can tell you about having more sons and daughters. They don't replace the one that you surrendered or lost. But God honors her request over and over and over again in part because she was willing to submit. She kept her vow. God honored it not just for her and not just for Samuel for the entire nation of Israel and in return for you and I right here in this moment. Here's how I would say it. 
you may not know what God could do with your surrender during times of suffering. But I'll tell you what I know. I know that you can trust Him. You may not know what God can do or will do. But what I know for certain, if I could be a voice of reason and faith in your life right now, I will tell you, He does know. And you can trust Him. You to stand. We're going to go back into this song, Waymaker. So I was listening to it earlier today. I was just like, man, that's a word for us. That's a reminder to us. And here's how it's described in James chapter 1, verse 2. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Verse 12, God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation afterward they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him I know um, in a room this size people tuning in online are all kinds of situations really challenging situations really painful situations there's the whole gambit of how we feel in a particular situation for the teenager who's in the midst of a breakup and they're telling the Lord, I don't want to break up. And the Lord's saying, break up. And it seems so trivial to a parent who's losing their child or a wayward child who's lost an addiction. And But the reality is that God sees all of it. He's inviting us to surrender in any of it. He's inviting us to trust him in the midst of any suffering, any temptation, any trial. And here's the reason. Because he alone has the capacity to accomplish something much bigger than what's happening in your personal situation. Our Israel team just got back and I can remember years ago when we were in the process of adopting one of our girls and we felt like, man, we got more on our plate than we can handle. We're going to be like 90 by the time they're out of our house already at this point. Like, what are we doing, God? And, and being looking down the road to Jericho and listening to our guide tell the narrative, the story from right there. And the Lord just clearly speaking to my wife in that moment. Would you be willing to join me like the Samaritan did in that moment? Would you be willing to take in a total stranger into your life and in so doing, change a family story for generations to come? Like something that had gotten so far off track. I'm inviting you to see generations in this family restored and redeemed. Would you join me in that big story that I want to tell about my glory to the world? You just have no idea what God wants to do through your surrender in the midst of suffering, whatever it is. But you can trust Him in the middle of it and with your future. Our prayer ministry teams are going to stay available on both sides. Um, 
I don't know, coming into this service, uh, men, there were eight tickets left to men's conference. Um, they are going to be gone by the end of the day if they aren't already. Um, but if you want to go grab one or get your name on the waiting list, it's a great opportunity to connect. Uh, five o'clock this evening, um, the Ascent class is happening in here. We're going to have wangs and thangs and, um, and then jump into what Church on the Rock is all about, give you an opportunity to ask questions, all that kind of stuff. So register on the app if you want to be here for that. I think we have almost 50 signed up right now who are going to be here tonight, or they all just forgot that it was the Super Bowl, and two of them will show up. We'll see. But hey, it's going to be a great time. So Jesus, we just say thank you. Thank you that we have the privilege of gathering in this place, that we have your word, and we have community with one another. We have the opportunity to discover who you are and then surrender our lives to your control because you've got a track record of trustworthiness that spans generations of time. Thank you for that. God, we continue to lift up those in Turkey and in Syria who are experiencing great loss and suffering right now. And God, we ask that you would show up and that you would show off, that you would make your name great even in the midst of that tragedy, that you would provide strength and wisdom for those who are on the ground there, that you would rescue and deliver, we pray. And Jesus, we just say that we love you and we're honored to be your sons and daughters. May your spirit go with us in this week. May you continue to speak clearly to us. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. God bless you, Church on the Rock. You are dismissed. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play.